Believe it or not. Believe it or not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibility. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan. I'm Brent. And so, Ryan, we are going to wrap up this season of the Notcast by... Doing, I guess, what we do best, right? Which is um, freaking people out a little bit. You got it. Okay. So, uh, just a quick aside here first. Do you remember the scene in Raising Arizona when Holly Hunter's character, Edwina McDonough, sings the lullaby to baby Nathan Jr.? I do, yes. So, yeah. um, the song she sings is actually a murder ballad. Uh, she, she's, <laughs> there's a line of, for I did murder that dear little girl. It's a murder ballad told from the perspective of the murderer. And um, speaking of creepy lullabies, it's not just that one. Ring Around the Rosie is about people dying from the plague. And the most popular children's lullaby of all is about the wind blowing a baby from the top of a tree. <laughs> so um, it turns out that scaring the crap out of babies is just a beloved practice around the world, right? Kids' songs are just terrifying. Indeed. Uh, it really gave me the idea for this episode, really. I remember when I was a kid, there was a song my grandpa used to sing about the teddy bear's picnic. You remember that yes. one? Uh, some of those lyrics uh, go, if you go out in the woods today, you'd better not go alone. If you go down in the woods today, you're sure of a big surprise. If you go down in the woods today, you better go in disguise. It's lovely down in the woods today, but it's safer to stay at home. Why? Because the teddy bears were having their picnic. Yes, and and I, I didn't realize until you started talking about this, but what they're what they're eating in their picnic is um, children, right? <laughs> or maybe the whole family. I don't know. I don't people. know. I don't know. But I think that that's uh, part of the confusion there and a little bit of why it's so creepy. Yes. And all of this is really just a segue into talking about strange things that, that people encounter in the woods, right? So for this episode, we are going deep into the woods to find stories to creep you out. Um, let's start in eastern Tennessee, where folklorist and author Steve Stockton specializes in writing about the Smoky Mountains. He recounts tales of things he's seen, as well as stories of those who have ventured into the woods and never come back. My name's Steve Stockton. I grew up in east Tennessee, around the Knoxville, Oak Ridge area. And I've been collecting uh, folklore and ghost stories and things like that since I was about five or six years old. And uh, finally got to a point where I sat about writing them all down, found out I had enough for uh, not only one book, but a second book. And uh, that, and just had a lifelong interest in the paranormal. Saw my first ghost when I was about that same age that I got interested in the paranormal and just kind of started me on a lifelong journey from there. Uh, we had a little mini farm, 26 acres, out in East Tennessee there, kind of between Knoxville and Oak Ridge in uh, the Solway community there in West Knoxville. And um, there was a ditch line that, that went up beside the house. You had to go up a hill and then down into the ditch. And it was fairly deep in the woods. It had been the original dirt road through there dating back to Revolutionary War times. And there was always something weird going on in or around that ditch. But uh, one of the most frightening things I ever had happen to me, I was just walking around in the woods. I'd walked up to the edge of the ditch, kind of peered down in there, 
turned to walk away. And when I did, I heard something in the leaves coming up out of the ditch. So I, I turned around and looked back toward the, the little crest of the hill there. And whatever it was came up out of the ditch and it was kicking up leaves like something bipedal running in the leaves. But there was absolutely nothing there. It scared the absolute daylights out of me. I ran back down the hill toward the house, probably about a half a mile away, screaming to beat the band, uh, making such a racket that my mom was actually out on the back porch, had come to see what was the matter. I passed her, went inside and hid under the bed. I was about eight years old at that time. Uh. And uh, my dad and brother got home from work. They went up there and looked. I wouldn't go near it. I uh, couldn't find anything, but they could see where, sure enough, the leaves had been disturbed. and. They're like, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. No, you know, I couldn't see it. It wasn't anything other than leaves kicking up, like something big was headed toward me. And then uh, it happened again about seven years later. We were getting ready to move from there, move farther on into Knoxville. And uh, I was just kind of taking a last look around the old place, knowing I'd probably never see it again, at least not under the same circumstances. And I walked back up there and just kind of looked in the dish. I thought, I wonder what that was that scared me you know, when I was a kid, when I was eight years old. Turn, start walking away, hear this familiar sound, something running in the ditch, coming up out of it. Turned around, look, same exact thing, leaves flying up, something headed toward me, something big sounded like. And I took off back down the hill again, didn't scream or cry that time, but I, I didn't stick around to see what it was. And uh, that's the last time I've been there, and then we moved away from there just a couple weeks later. Now there's a, more to that story, as uh, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would have said. Uh, flash forward about another eh, six or seven years or so, I was working in West Knoxville. Uh, the, the guy that I just knew him from work, didn't really know him at all, and he'd invited me to a party after we got off work. So I uh, went with him and uh, ended up in somebody's apartment. The only person I knew was the guy I was with and didn't really know him at all. And uh, some of the girls at the party had found a Ouija board under the, the host's couch. They got it out and started playing with it. And they were going around the room asking people questions. And when they got to me, I thought, okay, I've got a stumper for you. And the only thing I said was, what scared me when I was a kid? Well, the board starts moving around, playing shit, moves around, and it spells out W-A-T-E-R-S-P-R-I-T-E, -E, water sprite. And that didn't mean anything to them. Like, what, is it thirsty? Does it want some water? Does it want a Sprite? What's going on? I didn't didn't give anything away. But the next day, and this was in the days before the internet, I went to the, the library in Oak Ridge, where I was living at the time. And I went to the reference librarian and said, what can you tell me about a water Sprite? And she looked it up, and it's an elemental type being, one of the fey folk. Uh, and I can't recall right now, it's either a naiad or a dryad. One is a spirit of the water, and one is a spirit of the woods. And either one of those would be fitting because that same property, just very near where that happened, not only was it in the woods, but there were seven natural springs that came out of the hillsides there and flowed into one, which went a few hundred yards down into the lake. So based on what happened and what random people at a party got through the Ouija board, it was some type of uh, elemental spirit or one of the one of the fae folk. So Ryan, you know when you're hiking in the woods alone and you're you're just going along and you hear a baby laughing at you? No. 
Or <laughs> no, I don't know that at all. Yeah, that's never happened to you before. It ha- really hasn't. Or a <laughs> uh, or a baby sneezing. <laughs> I've never heard any of those. Things. Uh, okay, well, um, why am I bringing this up? Oh, yes, it's because nothing really gets us more scared than when we see or hear something that seems out of place, like that baby laughing at you in the woods, right? Right. Or a baby crying or or, uh, or sneezing at the wrong time. Exactly, <laughs> yes. Sometimes, Steve says, the woods can play tricks on you in that way. Uh, there was one uh, older fellow that my dad knew um, from the same area in Fentress County where my dad grew up. And he was probably well into his 80s when I was a kid, and he told me this story. So he's he's long gone now. But uh, he talked about he was hunting out in the woods. He was hunting ginseng was what he was hunting. And um, he passed by a, a little one-room cabin that uh, the whole family had been wiped out with uh, smallpox or cholera or something like that. So this would have been... Let's see, if he was 80 at that time, that would have probably been early 1900s, something like that. I'm not sure when the, those epidemics came through, but they, they were devastating, particularly in some of those mountain communities. But uh, he passed by this little room, one-room cabin, said it didn't have a door. The, the door was gone off the hinges if there had ever been one. Uh, no glass in the windows if there would even been windows. A lot of times it was just... Uh, tar paper or a sheet or something hung over the window or maybe boarded up in the wintertime. And I uh, passed by this little one-room shack, and he looks inside, and there's nothing in there. And uh, continues to walk away, and he hears what sounds like a chair scraping across the wooden floor. Goes back, looks in, doesn't see anything. There, there's not even any furniture in there. It's just a bare one-room. He said it was about as big as his bedroom, and I don't know how big his bedroom was, but their whole house wasn't very big. Starts away again, hears the noise, goes back. Absolutely nothing to be seen. He walks all the way around the place a couple times, thought it might be another ginseng hunter, either trying to play a joke on him or scare him away if he was close to their patch. Uh, And he said that the foundation was made from uh, just stones at the four corners of the dwelling stacked up so he could see all the way under the house, all the way around. There was nobody under there. Um, Started to walk away again. And uh, this time he heard, he said it was a little kid's voice. He couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl. He said, Daddy? Questioningly like that. And he said, I knew it was time for me to, to carry on. He said, because uh, I didn't have any kids at the time. And if whatever it was was looking for Daddy, then they weren't looking for me. So he just, he kept going. All right, these are just the kinds of stories that give me the creeps. Now we'd like to travel over to the town of Fook, Arkansas, about a four-hour drive southwest of Memphis. The town's famous for one reason. It's the setting for the legend of the Beast of Boggy Creek. For decades, the people in and around Fook have reported seeing a Bigfoot-like creature in the woods. The stories were made even more popular in 1972 when a low-budget docudrama was released about the town and the monster. So this movie is kind of a cult classic these days, and, and it literally put the town on the map. Today, there's a museum located in Fook's local mini-mart <laughs> dedicated to the creature. Uh, and we traveled there to find an eyewitness 
to the beast. It wasn't difficult. We met Reba Killian, who's lived in Fook her whole life, save for the years when she got her master's in psychology at Texas A&M. Reba said her life was forever changed around the age of 12 when riding along a wooded road, she encountered the beast. At first, my mom told me not to say anything because it was her dad. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Legend Boggy Creek. Yeah. James Crabtree in that movie was my grandfather. Oh, okay. And he caught so much crap sure. about, you know, when he saw it, that when we told, when my friend and I told my mom about it, she told us to keep her mouth shut. We didn't talk about it. Then after Karen and I got grown, you know, we decided, you know, whatever the consequences, we know what we saw. We're not trying to convince anyone. We're just telling our story. I was about 12 and she's about 13. Okay. She was a year older than I. Uh, she stayed at our house a lot. She, her dad was a single parent and uh, um, her grandma was raising her basically. And she stayed with, I didn't have any sisters, I had brothers. So she, we were like sisters a lot because we were together all the time. But uh, the day we saw it, <clears throat> this is some kind of funny, but it was on a Sunday, and it was a, a nice day. It was sunny. Um, we were on our way to a nearby town because it was the only place on Sunday you could buy beer. Oh, of course. <laughs> and yeah. my folks were wanting to go buy some beer. So Karen and I, my dad and mom and her dad were in the cab of the pickup. And we were sitting in the bed of the pickup, leaning up against the cab, looking behind us. And we drove past this area that was a big, there was a little pond on one side of the road and a big plum thicket on the other side. There's a house there now, but back then it was all woods. And um, we were looking back behind us and all of a sudden, this thing stepped out from where we had just passed. How, how everybody didn't see it, I don't know. We didn't even see it when we passed it. But it stepped out into the middle of the road, turned and looked our direction. Of course, we both went into total shock. We couldn't believe what we were seeing. And it just stood there. It seemed like forever, but it couldn't have been but just a few seconds. And then it turned and walked on the, over into that plum thicket. About three steps and it was all the way across the road it, it was huge and did, uh, did it look like what we have heard people describe could, could you describe what it looked like it looked it looked like a man with a few exceptions I mean it was seven and a half to eight feet tall uh, shoulders were about I'm going to say about hmm three, three and a half feet wide, huge shoulders, um, had really long arms that came like mid-calf and it was standing upright. Um, the face was humanistic. It had a little, not a really prominent eyebrow ridge, but just a, a slightly prominent brow ridge. Um, Dark eyes, I mean, its back was to the sun, so we couldn't 
get enough glimpse to tell eye color or nothing like that. But the color of the hair, most people say it's brown or black. This one was dark, dark red. Hmm. And we could tell that because the sun was hitting it clearly. And you could see that it was red. It stepped out in the road. It, it turned and looked right at us. I mean, like, like it was curious. Um, it just kind of looked at us. And then in a second, it just turned and walked on across the road. Huh. And so we were banging on the cab of the truck trying to get mom and daddy to stop because we knew nobody would believe us. You know, we were kids. But after we saw that, we stopped going in the woods and we were in the woods all the time. We grew up in those woods. We ran those woods all the time. But after we saw that, we stopped doing that. Mm. It frightened us that bad because we're thinking anything that big could kill us easily. Sometimes, Reba says, she and her family will sit on their porches to take in the night air, and they will still hear the sounds the creature makes from out in the woods. So we never went back in the woods. Uh, I don't go in the woods now unless I have a gun, a gun on me. Well, we we still hear, I, I, I don't know if it's the same one or offspring, but we still hear it scream down here sometimes. You hear you hear the sounds? Yeah. What does it sound like? Um, it's hard to describe. Okay. It starts out real low and guttural, and then it goes up to a big crescendo screech. Mm. And the night my nephew and I were standing on the porch and heard it, it when it got to that crescendo, crescendo, real high pitched screech. Then it stopped and it grunted twice, like, and we got the crap out of there. Reba has a theory about what the creature is. She thinks the beast is the incarnation of a character from a popular book, the Bible. Well, I've read the Bible many times through, and when Cain killed Abel, he was marked and thrown out of the garden. And the Bible says he went out and mated with the daughters of man. Well, what was the daughters of man? Because what we consider man was Adam and Eve who was in the garden and his offspring. So what was that out there that Cain mated with? Uh, That might have been, I mean, this is just my theory. mm -hmm. And my theory is based on what I read in the Bible and it's just a theory. I mean, it's there's nothing to prove it. But maybe that was God's first try at mankind. But it was more beast than man. So he had to, he decided to try again. Mm-hmm. Or maybe that was just a creature he created give him some kind of human interaction. But it just wasn't enough. Now we're heading to rural Ohio, where for 150 years, locals have told stories of the grass man, basically their version of Bigfoot. One man is convinced he saw the creature in the woods surrounding his family's farm when he was a child. Meet Michael Moore, who grew up in Westerville, Ohio, about 15 miles north of Columbus. His sighting affected him so much, he still searches the woods for Bigfoot today. Yes, when uh, we lived up in a... uh town called Central College, and uh, it was close to Westerville, Ohio. 
And my dad had five acres of land down there. It was close to a, a, a reservoir called Hoover Reservoir. And um, we had, uh, beyond our five acres, we had we were surrounded by woods, basically. And we'd go out there. My brother and I would go out there. He was a couple of years older. And we'd go out in the woods and just have a heyday, have a good good time. And, you know, you go out there quite a bit, so quite a ways. Well, I, I can't quite place the exact year, but I was about 10, 11, maybe 12. Um, uh, my brother was two years older, and we just happened to be going out in the woods and just playing around, and uh, we got there as a ways, and we found a bale of hay, which, you know, come later on in life, I said, I couldn't figure out why that bale of hay was there where it was, where we saw it. But anyway, we had, we were just, uh, we picked up a, chopped down a maple sapling, sharpened the end of it, and we were sitting there just throwing it like a spear at the bale of hay. And uh, while we were doing that, all of a sudden, we heard this bodacious combination of like a roar and a yell and a, and a, I don't, I, it's hard to explain what it sounded like, but it just scared the, the jeebies out of me and my brother. And like I say, I, that was the first time I ever, we ever, I ever kept up with him somewhat trying to run back home. But it was, uh, it stood up. What happened was what we saw, what I remember seeing was when we were sitting there throwing it, all of a sudden it stood up or appeared. And I guess I had to look up once it roared. And there it was standing up on its two feet. And it was standing in front of a, it was standing in front of some trees. I think they were pine trees and there was a grove of pine trees there. And I think that pine grove of pine trees was narrow and beyond it, it was an open field and there was sun on the other side shining through, through the trunks of those trees, through the trees. And that's what happened there was when, when it did, as it was doing that, it created a silhouette of the creature. So I didn't get a, I didn't get a good chance of seeing any facial features or anything like that. I just remember, I just remember it looking like it was about eight feet tall. And, and uh, the one thing I remember distinctly is that it, it put its arms straight out to each side, both arms out, like it wanted to scare us. That's oh. what I remember most. It was like, uh, he had long arms too. And, uh, we ran home after that, which, you know, we didn't do anything more than that. We didn't hang around. We just took off home and told mom, and dad, and they didn't really, I guess they thought we'd just seen a bear or something out in the woods and didn't think anything more about it. I didn't, I didn't really think too much of it as I grew up. It kind of just went to the wayside. I, you know, I didn't forget about it, but I didn't, nobody ever s talked about it much until later in life, people used to make fun of me when I told them a story and stuff. And uh, uh, I know that some of the stories that you hear about the Bigfoot, that they can have a pretty good odor, a really, right. really expensive odor to them. We didn't experience that. And it was basically far enough away where we just, you know, took off. So unlike Reba, Michael didn't let the encounter stop him from exploring. In fact, he said it had the opposite effect he saw plenty of other strange things in the woods over the course of his life. I remember I was down in the downstairs of our old house. Was, the old house was part of an old log cabin built onto you know, part of the house was built onto a log cabin. And there was a front section there that my dad had opened up into like a sunroom type thing. And, um, anyway, my brothers 
we're upstairs. All of a sudden, I hear this blood-curdling scream coming from the upstairs. And uh, I we go up there to find out what it was going on, and they said they had seen a couple of red eyes looking in the window. And uh, and uh, I checked with the, my brother the other day, and he said he also had seen a shadowy figure when he remembers back now. And uh, there are stories there's stories that uh, tell about Bigfoot being on top of roofs sometime. I guess I guess that's been several many stories I've read that where they be, they can climb up on roofs and peer into windows and different things. So I think huh. if that was if it was Bigfoot, then I'm thinking that was part of that whole thing. It was it was living around there. I guess we'd also we'd also heard. Later, when I, I went to a place called uh, School in Columbus Technical Institute, which is now Columbus State Community College in, uh, in Columbus, and uh, I talked to somebody down there who lived in the area, and, and they had said something about finding, I don't know, it was just a stone's throw away, a, uh, I think it was a cow or something that was mutilated and picked through. So, and then... And then there was another uh, something that somebody had told me that uh, there was a chicken hutch that had been torn into and the chickens were killed and some missing and they had found some tracks going out into the woods. Of course, I wasn't around there at the time, but but uh, that was pretty close. That wasn't that far from where we were living. All right, Brent, all of this, all of this ghosts, Bigfoot, is that big feet? I don't know what the plural of Bigfoot is. Anyway, uh, disembodied voices, Native American spirits, all of this is making my head hurt. Bigfoots. Maybe. Regardless, I think the woods are too crowded with Bigfoots and big feet and weird stuff. And I'm going to stop right now at this point all camping, hiking, and exploring. I'm going to spend my life indoors in air-conditioned shopping malls. That's what I'm going to do. Do you camp? Like, was that a thing for you? When's the last time you went camping? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't. I don't really camp mm, mm. or hike or explore. <laughs> well, then, um, I don't know. Maybe you'll come back with some creepy stories about things you saw at the mall. Uh, I think especially where we're located, I can definitely do that. But what I'm saying <laughs> is I'm still alive. So I think that's the the bonus of not going out into the woods. I'm pretty sure I've seen Bigfoot at Florence Mall before. No doubt. If, uh, shout out to uh, Florence Mall. All right. We'd like to thank Steve Stockton, Reba Killian, and Michael Moore for sharing their stories with us today. And we'd like to invite those who have enjoyed Steve's stories to look up his books on Amazon or other places wherever you buy books and check out his YouTube channel. It's called 13 Past Midnight, uh, and he actually reads some of his work there. So, Reba Killian has spent her whole life in Fook, Arkansas, but the Beast of Boggy Creek isn't the only amazing story from the state. Ryan, did you know that one of the most decorated American soldiers has been laid to rest in Arkansas? Check out our website, Ripley's.com. And you can read about Daniel Richmond Edwards, who died in 1967 and served in World Wars I and II while earning 83 medals after being wounded 55 times. Believe it or not. He was awarded the Silver Star, the 
Distinguished Service Cross and the Congressional Medal of Honor. Check out this and other amazing stories from Arkansas at Ripley's.com. So we've spent a lot of time in this episode learning about all the weird things people have seen in the woods, and in some cases, what scared them. Steve Stockton told us that when he was a kid, there were only a few things that really scared him about going out and playing in the woods. His mom always told him to avoid strange animals because if they bit him, he'd get rabies. And then secondly, he became afraid of quicksand, partly because on television, heroes were always getting stuck in it and then having to escape from it. But was he right to be afraid? Uh, Despite the popular cinematic depiction of quicksand, research shows that these sinking holes may not be as encapsulating as we believe. From Indiana Jones to Jumanji, we've witnessed our favorite characters slowly slip into panic and spring into heroic acts to save themselves from quicksand traps. But the fact is, if you get stuck in a bed of quicksand, there are ways to escape its evil clutches. In fact, due to the composition of the human body, you'll never actually be fully immersed and swallowed by quicksand. Made mostly of water, human bodies actually float and don't entirely sink in the loose, wet sand. And while getting out can be difficult, it's not impossible. If a human is trapped in its clutches and begins to flail around, he or she will start to sink deeper. However, regardless of movement or squirming, people aren't dense enough to dip all the way under. At most, a person will fall in a little deeper than his or her waist. In turn, items with a higher density than quicksand won't sink either unless they move. So what should you do if you happen to fall in? Experts recommend wiggling your legs to create space between your appendages and the sand. This will allow water to dilute the sand, leaving you the ability to slowly crawl out of its clutches. It may be a slow process, but it's effective. And when you finally get out, we here at Ripley's will be ready to tell your story. Believe us or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. I edit the show. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. If you enjoyed this episode, go tap that fifth star on Apple Podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. So that does it for season two. That uh, does it. Yep. Uh, Ryan and I will be back with season three in a few weeks. So thank you, Ripley. So we'll yeah. be back. Yep. All right. All right. See you, everybody. Later. And the night my nephew and I were standing on the porch and heard it, it when it got to that crescendo, crescendo, you know, high pitched screech, then it stopped and it grunted twice, like boom, boom.
Believe it or not.